Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. Episode 72, The Fourth Syrian War, The Battle of Raphia. The inaugural years of Antiochus III of the Seleucid Empire and Ptolemy IV Philopater of Egypt saw each young monarch faced with similar challenges, but their attitudes and responses differed dramatically. Anyone hedging their bets at the start of 222 would have assumed that the Seleucid dynasty would have collapsed under his own weight, and that the flourishing Ptolemaic realm was poised to expand its borders in the aftermath. Yet if anything, the fortunes of each began to switch as one king was demonstrably more qualified for his role than the other. While Antiochus was out in the field and leading armies into Mesopotamia to confront rebellious governors, Ptolemy simply empowered his corrupt courtiers and spent more time cavorting in the pomp and circumstance as his family members were murdered or assassinated. With some semblance of order in his empire restored, Antiochus turned his attention to his Egyptian neighbor, poised to lead an invasion force across the Syrian border. These would be the events that would lead up to the Fourth Syrian War, the largest conflict of the Hellenistic world since the wars following Alexander's death nearly a century before. Of the six Syrian wars fought between the Seleucids and Ptolemies, this is the most well documented, as Polybius provides us with a highly detailed account of an event that, in his eyes, was comparable in scale to the contemporary Second Punic War. Culminating in the Battle of Raphia in 217, it would also be the swan song of the Hellenistic military tradition, a topic that necessitates an extensive analysis of the trends and developments of warfare following Alexander and the successor kingdoms. With this in mind, let us look at the factors that contributed to its outbreak. While the official start is generally considered to be the year 219, there were issues stemming back as early as 222. Following his coronation, Antiochus was already looking to lead a campaign across his southern border. According to Polybius, the corrupt official Hermaeus presented the king with a letter written by Ptolemy IV, only intended for the eyes of Achaios, the Seleucid general of Asia Minor, its contents urging him to revolt against Antiochus. Achaios was still technically loyal to the crown, though he would eventually take the title of king in 220, but Polybius insists that this was a forged letter on Hermaeus's part to keep the rookie Seleucid ruler preoccupied and unawares of his minister's wrongdoings. Given the contentious nature of Polybius's account of Seleucid affairs, we may question whether it was truly a forgery, given the past history of Ptolemaic interests in interventions in Asia Minor. Either way, Antiochus appears to have accepted it as genuine, and was sufficiently driven enough to assemble his army at the city of Apamea, near the border of the two kingdoms. Ptolemy's supposed letter to Achaios was merely the catalyst leading to the outbreak of hostilities, but there were a whole host of other reasons to push the two dynasties to war. The rivalry between the Seleucid and Ptolemaic houses went back to their founders, Seleucus I Nicator and Ptolemy I Soter, respectively. Though they were close allies throughout much of the turmoil following the death of Alexander the Great, the victory over the Antigonids at the Battle of Ipsus in 301 led Seleucus and Ptolemy to butt heads regarding the allocation of its spoils. Ptolemy took the opportunity to seize the region known as Coeli Syria, which was formerly a part of the Antigonid Empire. This would contain the area south of modern-day Syria, including much of Phoenicia and the lands surrounding Jerusalem, 
ending just short of the Sinai Peninsula. Seleucus had been one of the leading commanders on the battlefield, and saw those lands as his by right of conquest. Ptolemy did not directly participate in the actual engagement, so his occupation of formerly Antigonid lands was tantamount to theft in the eyes of Seleucus and his descendants. In spite of his anger, Seleucus did not press the issue beyond making a public declaration of peace in light of their past friendship, leaving the border between Seleucid and Ptolemaic territories at the Eleutherus River, the Nahir al-Kabir, but still clearly indicated that Soter was in the wrong. The later Seleucid kings never forgot this claim, and bitterly contested ownership of this region on the grounds of it being the dynasty's spear-one land. Antiochus would use the same line of reasoning to justify his later invasion of Thrace to the Romans, citing Seleucus's victory over Lysimachus at Choropedium that took place nearly a century before. As such, it didn't take long for the heirs of these two men to come to blows, as Antiochus I Soter and Ptolemy II Philadelphus would battle from 274 to 271, before signing a treaty to cease their conflict. Generally speaking, these treaties would only last through the lifetime of the rulers who signed it, and wars usually broke out a short time after one or both the monarchs died. The Second Syrian War erupted the year after the death of Antiochus I in 261, and the Third Syrian War immediately followed the deaths of Ptolemy II and Antiochus II in 246. Though ostensibly the aggressor in this case, Antiochus III was just following this pattern, and no doubt he wished to bring the war to Ptolemy rather than having it come to him. Coily Syria was important to the strategic aims of both. It was the only direct route by land for an invading army to march into Egypt, thus explaining why Ptolemy was so eager to seize it in the aftermath of Ipsus, and the Seleucids were never comfortable with having the border of the Ptolemaic kingdom so close to their imperial heartland. In his invasion into the Seleucid Empire during the Third Syrian War, Ptolemy III captured Seleucia Pyria, Seleucia by the sea. As one of the important cities of the so-called Syrian Tetropolis, it was only a day's march away from Antioch, leaving the capital dangerously exposed. More humiliating was the fact that it contained the ancestral mausoleum of the Seleucid dynasty, and so this would have been even more motivation to push Antiochus into a decisive action. Such were the causes that Antiochus inherited, but his unique situation following the coronation further compelled him to invade Coily Syria. His empire had just weathered several crises that nearly led it to collapse. The murder of his brother Seleucus III left Antiochus the only surviving male heir in the dynasty, and Molon's rebellion in Mesopotamia was in full swing. Even though Molon would be dealt with, there still could be pretenders to the throne, namely Achaios, who would seize upon the opportunity to use the king's relative inexperience as a justification for civil war. A victory over the Ptolemies would be precisely the solution he needed, providing him glory to legitimize his rule in the face of his rivals. It would also give him the booty necessary to enrich his troops. Quite a few had already threatened to mutiny on account of missing back pay, and the revolt of Molon deprived him of the revenues from one of the richest territories of the empire for two years. The selling of prisoners of war and captured Egyptian bullion would have seen an immediate influx of much-needed cash, and the taxes placed upon the wealthy cities of the Levant would have served Seleucid fiscal interests in the long term. As we will clearly see with Antiochus's later career, he was deeply fixated on restoring the fortunes of his empire, and would go to great efforts to see his dreams become reality, a policy of renovatio imperii Seleucidarum, if there ever was one. 
with sufficient encouragement, Antiochus made some initial strikes against the Ptolemaic garrisons at the cities of Gera and Brakhoi in early 220, but was facing difficulties in breaching the heavily fortified positions. These cities were located in the Becca Valley in modern Lebanon, and bordered by the Lebanon Mountains, making it the only suitable invasion route into Koili, Syria. But the Ptolemaic official Theodotus of Aetolia was more than prepared for the king's arrival, and had already built the necessary defenses. A plan to force his way through the pass was in the works, but Antiochus had to set the invasion aside when bad news regarding the rebellion of Molon compelled him to personally lead his army into Mesopotamia. Such an attack on the border should have been a major cause for alarm, but the Egyptian government appears to not have taken any countermeasures against the Seleucids. This was only to the advantage of Antiochus, who successfully defeated Molon and returned to Syria by the end of that year. In the Seleucid court, the king spent time in council with his royal friends to determine the next best course of action. Achaios had by this point openly rebelled, and threatened an invasion of Syria, before being forced to return to the city of Laodicea in Asia Minor. But Antiochus was eager to return to the Becca Valley to resume his attack on the Ptolemaic defenses. The royal physician Apollophanes proposed that Antiochus move against and capture the city of Seleucia by the sea since it could serve as a point of Ptolemaic counterattack due to it being so close to Antioch, never mind the sense of relief from removing the shame of its loss twenty years before. On this, the king agreed, and in the spring of 219 he marched out and laid siege to the city. Though he failed to bribe the ruling body into giving up without a fight, some junior officers were persuaded to defect and agreed to take part in a plan. Dividing his army by land and sea, a few Seleucid soldiers were able to sneak ladders up to the walls as the city was simultaneously attacked at the port and by the gates. After these soldiers reached the lower part of Seleucia, the bribed Ptolemaic officers pressured the high command into seeking terms, claiming that the Seleucid army had completely broke their way inside. In one fell swoop, Seleucia by the sea returned to the fold, and Antiochus spared its citizenry from any retaliation or violence though there appears to have been no mention of what happened to those that weren't citizens, but this is neither here nor there. The start of that year saw great success, but it appears that Antiochus was going to keep his Egyptian invasion on hold in favor of directing his attention back against Achaios in Asia Minor, until a messenger came to his court, bringing him an interesting piece of news from the party of Theodotus of Aetolia. He was originally a member of Ptolemy's inner circle, having personally carried out the authorized assassination of the king's younger brother, Magas, but his faith in Philopater had faltered due to the monarch's more unsavory habits, and perhaps following the imprisonment and death of Cleomenes of Sparta. It is implied in the sources that he went to Alexandria, likely to alert the court of Antiochus's movements, but only just barely escaped with his life from the otherwise unknown machinations of Ptolemy's minister, Sosibius. The letter he sent was formally offering his defection to the Seleucid camp, and while he was no longer in control of the Becca Valley, he and another officer seized the important provincial cities of Ptolemaeus Acco, the modern Acre, and Tyre, and were facing an attack by loyalist Ptolemaic forces. Theodotus's offer proved to be too tempting to resist, and by the middle of 219, Antiochus amassed an army of over 60,000 strong, and marched into Koili, Syria, thus officially beginning the Fourth Syrian War. 
Much of his forces would have been focused on breaking the garrisons at Gara and Brokhoi, while he himself and a smaller body of fast-moving troops tried to find a coastal path to relieve the besieged Ptolemais. After encountering and defeating a guarding Ptolemaic force near modern Beirut, he waited for the rest of his army to join him, and by the late summer he was able to lift the siege. Now in possession of two major strongholds in the region, and coordinating with Theodotus, Antiochus hoped that he could secretly send out a fleet of ships to take by surprise the heavily defended city of Pelusium on the easternmost edge of the Nile Delta, which would have compelled many of the cities of Phoenicia to defect, and given him a clear path for invasion into Egypt. Unfortunately, this plan had to be laid aside, as many of the wells surrounding the site were being filled up, and the canals opened on the orders of King Ptolemy and his army, who may very well have overseen them personally. This meant that Antiochus was going to have to continue the long and arduous process of taking Coily Syria settlement by settlement, whether by means of persuasion or by force. Such is how the rest of the year progressed. But during the winter of 219-218, a general armistice was called between Antiochus and the ministers of Ptolemy, who looked to see if a peace can be negotiated with the assistance of third-party mediators from across the Greek world. With a degree of overconfidence, the Seleucid king consented to the idea, under the presumption that he could win the war with words, given the lack of response on Ptolemy's part. At the newly reoccupied Seleucia, the ambassadors had their audience with Antiochus, and he laid out his justification for the war. Citing the injustice of Ptolemy I against his ancestor Seleucus, he argued that he was merely restoring his birthright. Ptolemy's ministers countered with their own version of the story, claiming that Ptolemy Soter and Seleucus came to an understanding long ago, and the justification for Antiochus' own actions was a farce. Little progress was being made, and when the Egyptian ambassadors repeatedly tried to incorporate Achaios into the treaty, Antiochus was greatly offended, and refused to entertain the matter further. War would resume with the onset of spring in 218, and while it may have seemed like a failure or wasted time on the part of the ambassadors, wasting time is exactly what Ptolemy was planning for. continue with the narrative, it is important that we look at the nature of warfare during the Hellenistic period to see what, if any, changes that occurred between the start of our period until the late 3rd century. In many ways, the Fourth Syrian War is the swan song of the Hellenistic military tradition, and while there would be a few more conflicts where both sides had similar organization and tactics, none would be as well documented as either the Battle of Raphia nor the contest between the Roman legions and Macedonian phalanx. Historically, while the Roman army and even the army of Alexander the Great have received extensive attention, books on Hellenistic armies are generally far and few between. But the last ten years in particular have seen the publication of many works that take advantage of new evidence to revise or reassess past writings. For the Seleucids, Bezalel Bar-Kokhva's 1976 work, The Seleucid Army, has remained the foundational text, but two new works have come out as of this year in 2022, Jean-Charles Duplessis' The Seleucid Army of Antiochus the Great, and Graham Wrightson's The Battles of Antiochus the Great. For the Ptolemies, we have Paul Jostono's The Army of Ptolemaic Egypt, and Christelle Fisher-Beauvais' Army and Society in Ptolemaic Egypt. 
The full listing of these works will be in my episode bibliography. And as ever, I encourage you to check it out on my website or episode transcript. In terms of ancient literary accounts we can rely on, the Histories of Polybius is the only near-contemporaneous writing to survive that extensively discusses tactics and military organization at this time, but even then, his formal treatise on Hellenistic warfare has not survived. Later Roman authors like Aelianus Tacticus and Asclepiodotus composed manuals on Hellenistic military doctrine, supposedly based upon earlier writings like Polybius's Lost Treatise and the memoirs of Pyrrhus of Epirus. To compensate, archaeological and papyrological evidence has greatly expanded our knowledge base of the inner workings of the militaries of the successor kingdoms. The flourishing of experimental archaeology has also seen academics and enthusiasts attempt to reconstruct equipment of ancient soldiers to test out hypotheses regarding tactics and other similar aspects of warfare during the period. Over a century after the death of Alexander the Great, the Macedonian Pike Phalanx remained the most dominant military formation on the battlefield throughout the Hellenistic world. Pikemen, traditionally known as phalangites to distinguish them from the classical hoplite, would line up in formation wielding long pikes, sarissae or sarissas, to present a nigh-impenetrable wall of spearheads that could deter both infantry and cavalry alike. The size of these spears necessitated the use of two hands to wield them effectively, and a small shield would be slung over the left arm of the pikeman as he held the sarissa on his right side. We have an approximate idea of how phalangites of this period were equipped, thanks to an inscription from the Macedonian city of Amphipolis, which threatens to find any soldier for lacking the following equipment. A bronze conical helmet, a padded and layered linen chestpiece known as a linothorax, and metal greaves. Various decorations could adorn their equipment, such as feathers, horsehair crests, and cheek guards resembling thick beards. There are units that appear in our sources with the names Argriaspides or Leucaspides, silver shields and white shields respectively, possessing more ornate shield designs to signify their status as elite soldiers. Phalangites were organized into a unit called the Syntagma, measuring about 16 men deep by 16 men across, totaling to 256 pikemen in a single Syntagma. These Syntagma could be combined into larger divisions, and the paper strength of a complete phalanx amounts to approximately 16,384 men, or about 16 rows of 1,024 phalangites. It was generally a dense formation, and required a great amount of coordination to keep the unit together, lest it form gaps that left its members to the mercy of any foes that could make it into their line. However, the phalanx was never intended to be a mobile unit, but to act as the anvil that kept the enemy pinned at spear's reach. Its presence as it crawled across the battlefield could be incredibly intimidating to any who had to reckon with it. Plutarch describes the terror of Aemilius Paulus, the experienced Roman conqueror of Macedonia, upon coming face to face with the bristling spears of the Macedonian phalanx at the Battle of Pydna in 168 BC. Quote, and when Paulus observed the powerful battle line formed by their interlocked shields and the ferocity of their attack, he was astounded and gripped by fear, for he had never before seen a sight so terrifying as this one. Often, in his later years, he used to recollect what he had seen. End quote. If the phalanx served as the anvil, then the hammer used to deliver the decisive blow was the cavalry. Traditionally stationed on the wings, the goal of the cavalry was to flank the enemy infantry as it was pinned down by the phalanx. 
Oftentimes, the king would be responsible for leading this charge, accompanied by personal guards known as the Agema, or the successors of the Macedonian Hetairoi, companions, who were often wealthier and of a higher social rank given the cost associated with the maintenance of horses. Others, such as missile units like slingers or archers, could provide the necessary support to the main body, and the successor kingdoms were willing to incorporate diverse troop types into their arsenal as they saw fit. While the function of the Macedonian phalanx and cavalry remained largely the same in the Hellenistic period, the context had certainly differed. In the time of Alexander, the phalanx was being deployed to great effect against nations and peoples that often did not possess military traditions that could easily contend with the mass of long spears, or were at the very least unfamiliar with its use. On the other hand, those like the Ptolemies of the Seleucids now spent a great amount of time fighting each other, meaning that the phalanx was now going against other phalanxes. There are a few trends that can be gleaned from the few documented battles of the time. For one, it appears that the size of the phalanx became ever larger as we move into the 3rd century. The standard depth of 16 men deep remained much the same, and they could adjust it accordingly so that it could become more or less dense depending on the need. As we recall, Antigonus Doson increased the depth of his phalanx against Cleomenes of Sparta at Selassia, doubling it from 16 to 32 men per file as he shortened the length of the row. It is clear, though, that these phalanxes became ever more massive, both numerically and proportionally speaking, when compared to those deployed in past engagements. The great battles of Alexander's conquest of Persia typically had an infantry-to-cavalry ratio of around 5 to 1, but later battles in the Hellenistic period show ratios of 8 to 1, 10 to 1, or even 15 to 1, clearly indicating the growing emphasis on the phalanx. Along with the size of the phalanx, the length of the sarissa appeared to have increased as well. During the campaigns of Alexander and the early Hellenistic period, each pike was approximately 10 to 12 cubits, roughly 5.3 meters or 17 feet in length. This gave the Macedonian phalangites much greater reach than the dory spear of traditional hoplites, and was effective at keeping back infantry and cavalry alike. When going up against another Macedonian phalanx, however, the advantage in reach was quickly lost, and so the logical thing to do was to keep extending the pike's length to compensate, with each side now engaging in a proverbial arms race. During the early mid-third century, it appears to have increased substantially to 16 cubits, 7.7 .7 meters or 25 feet, yet by the time of the Fourth Syrian War, it may have reduced to 14 cubits, 6.7 meters or 22 feet. The reason for this slight decrease in size may be due to its impracticality, as a 25-foot pike would have been very difficult to keep balanced or carry it for long periods of time without tiring even an experienced wielder. While the phalanx was the main arm of the Hellenistic army, this isn't to say that they didn't start incorporating new tactics. War elephants were famously adopted by the successors after first encountering them during the invasion of India, to varying degrees of success. According to Polybius, those of the Indian origin were generally considered superior to those of the North African forest elephant, an extinct subspecies of the African bush elephant that was thought to be more timid and less intelligent than the Asian elephant. The Seleucids appear to have some sort of breeding center in the city of Apamea, but had access to Indian elephants through their connection to the Mauryan Empire. Given their limited contact with South Asia, the Ptolemies had to turn south and send hunting expeditions along the coast of East Africa to capture elephants for their armies. 
Other troops coming from different corners of the world would add their own fighting styles, either as mercenaries or as levied troops under the service of the king. Even accounting for the loss of Parthia and Bactria, the Seleucids possessed the largest domain in the Hellenistic world, and could draw upon enormous amounts of troops from major population centers like Syria and Mesopotamia, many of whom were settled in military colonies. Estimates regarding manpower suggest that the total standing army could be over 100,000 men in wartime, regularly deploying 30,000 to 40,000 men in battle. With such an extensive geographic reach, this also meant that they could integrate many local military traditions from across much of the Levant, Mesopotamia, Iran, and Central Asia. The dynasty was particularly well known for elephants, but Antiochus in his later career would adopt cataphracts and horse archers from the Eurasian nomads of the steppe, along with scythe chariots, a popular staple of Mesopotamian and Near Eastern armies. A sense of awe regarding the scale and diversity of the Seleucid military is quite evident in the writings of their opponents. The author of 1st Maccabees has the Jewish martyr Eleazar Maccabeus sacrifice himself by bravely charging a colossal armored Seleucid war elephant with only a spear before being crushed underneath its weight, a symbolic representation of the Syrian dynasty's overwhelming martial power. During his recounting of Antiochus's war with Rome, Livy's description of the Seleucid army echoes Herodotus's discussion of the invasion force of Xerxes II of Persia, though both aren't necessarily intended to be flattering images. While lacking the same territorial breadth as their Syrian rivals, the Ptolemaic kingdom was anything but short of manpower. Egypt was the most densely populated region in the known world, and thanks to their extensive manipulation of the Nile River, the Ptolemies were able to encourage the permanent settlement of military colonists known as clerics, who were given a piece of arable land to either farm or, more likely, rent out as a permanent source of income so they could serve full-time in the army. While these clerics were predominantly Greek in origin, they could come from a wide variety of backgrounds, Jewish, Celtic, Thracian, to name but a few. Estimates suggest that the Ptolemaic military could rely on upwards of 170,000 soldiers in times of war, though it must be said that a substantial portion were dedicated to staffing the dynasty's powerful navy that ensured their control over much of the eastern Mediterranean. Maintaining these colossal militaries required equally gratuitous expenses. It has been argued that Antiochus III was having to spend around 7,500 talents a year on his peacetime army, about half of their annual budget, and this could rise to 60% during a campaign. Ptolemy was in no better position, and one estimate puts the wartime expenses amounting to nearly 80% of that year's budget. According to the traditional story as relayed to us by Polybius and the later Epitomus Justin, the Egyptian army fell out of practice and severely dropped in overall quality thanks to the indolence of Ptolemy IV. Many of Antiochus's troops were seasoned veterans, and the king himself was now experienced with leading an army on campaign. Ptolemy's ministers recognized that they were in a perilous situation, as Philopater was not taking the necessary steps to supervise the shoring up of defenses or mobilization of the armies in the face of the Seleucid onslaught. Sosibius and Agathocles pushed for negotiations in the winter of 219-218 under the pretext of stopping the war but in reality, it was a ploy to buy time so they could oversee a dramatic reformation of the military. 
On their orders, thousands of active-duty soldiers, mercenaries, and new recruits assembled in Alexandria to be equipped and prepared to march against Antiochus. In addition to those summoned to the capital were a group of expert commanders from Greece, some of whom were previously staff members of both Demetrius II Aetolicus and Antigonus III Docen. Their professionalism, and to Polybius their Hellenic martial ardor, were essential in instilling discipline in the troops and reorganizing them. Old units were broken up. The men were divided by age and background before being equipped and drilled in the new formations. In a sharp reversal of policy, nearly 20,000 native Egyptians were trained to serve as phalangites in the phalanx. It was because of this reform, which is said to have lasted from 219 to 217, that the Egyptian army stood any chance against Antiochus. Though we may generally view Polybius as good of an ancient historian as we can ask for, there have been challenges to his presentation of events. While Ptolemy IV was not a model ruler or exemplar of martial virtues, it is unfair to exclusively attribute all the blame to him, and we may be able to look at the action of his predecessors. After his success in the Third Syrian War, Ptolemy III Euergetes actively refused to participate in any large-scale campaigns for the remaining 20 years of his reign. It is quite likely that some sort of demobilization took place afterwards, for the sheer cost of an active military of that size would have been impractical to maintain the long term without any significant gains. Yet this reduction would have left it weakened and vulnerable to a renewed attack upon its borders, as what ultimately would happen following Antiochus's coronation. It has been argued that this reform of the military has been shifted to occur under the reign of Philopater, which feels more thematically appropriate as to coincide with the overall decline of Ptolemaic power. But it seems almost paradoxical in some cases. For instance, Polybius claims that Ptolemy did nothing to prepare Egypt for invasion, yet there is evidence that he was directly overseeing the defenses at Pelusium. It is also rather strange to imagine that the heavily populated Alexandria would be the place to host the gathering of tens of thousands of men in secret, and there almost assuredly would have been Seleucid spies within the city. Based on the testimony of Polybius, it has been generally assumed that the Ptolemaic army was largely Hellenized, or rather it strongly resisted giving the native Egyptians any substantial role in it. This is no longer believed to be the case, as there is plenty of evidence to indicate that they perform military duties in non-insignificant numbers. Often described as makemoi, these men would receive a smaller land grant than a traditional cleric, but were still considered an important element of the army. What differed about this event is that they would be enrolled as phalangites, a spot traditionally reserved for land-owning Greeks. Such a practice had occurred once before, when Ptolemy I faced the massive invasion force of Demetrius I Polyarchetes in the late 310s, the Egyptians were now called upon to defend the kingdom in the event of an emergency. Antiochus's approach necessitated a much larger levy of 20,000 Egyptian soldiers, new recruits who needed to be instructed and equipped to fight as part of the phalanx. Whether or not we can accept Polybius' story, it is clear that the army had seen a serious restructuring of its makeup and organization. But the true test of the revitalized Ptolemaic military was still yet to come. In the spring of 218, the Seleucid force resumed their march south following the end of the armistice. En route, 
Antiochus saw the voluntary submission of a number of cities, including the island of Arados that had rebelled from Seleucid control in the time of Antiochus's grandfather. Other Ptolemaic officers and commanders who defected were given very good treatment by the king, encouraging even more to flock to the fold. Those that did not immediately fling open their gates or offer terms of surrender were met with a vicious siege. Phoenician Sidon and the Arabian city of Rabatamana, modern Amman, were quickly set upon and conquered, with many submitting out of fear of further reprisal. It appears that Antiochus was making good headway into Koile, Syria, but he spent the entire campaigning season trying to deal with the extensive Ptolemaic fortifications that dotted up and down the coast, while the Egyptian king was using his time to continue building up his forces. So the year ended with little fanfare, but it would be in 217 that the war would be decided. In the early spring, Ptolemy departed from the Nile Delta with his greatly enlarged force towards Pelusium, whereupon Antiochus caught wind of his foe's movements and pushed as far south as he could. On June 13th, Ptolemy left Pelusium, just as the Seleucid king made his way to Gaza. Five days later, Philopater encamped near the small town of Raphia, modern Rafa in the southern Gaza Strip, and Antiochus approached shortly thereafter, placing his tents just over a mile away from the Ptolemaic camp. The atmosphere was tense, but not without disturbance. Given the close proximity of the two camps, skirmishes between foraging parties and eager warriors were commonplace in the days following. Theodotus the Aetolian, likely under Antiochus's approval, snuck his way into the enemy camp in the dark of night, attempting to assassinate Ptolemy as he slept, but missed his target and was forced to retreat back to the Seleucid tents. The Book of Daniel from the Old Testament speaks of the dramatic build-up to Raphia, portraying the army of Antiochus, whom he refers to as the King of the North, as a great flood washing through Koile, Syria, while the King of the South, Ptolemy IV, was moved with rage as he set out to confront this trespasser. For five more days this standoff continued, but on June 22, 217 BC, the Battle of Raphia would finally commence. While he provides a wealth of information regarding how battles were fought and what moves were made, Polybius's account of Raphia is not without its problems, and the placement of troops is going to vary depending on the interpretation. Let us start with the Seleucid army approaching from the north. In keeping with his empire's reputation, Antiochus's forces at Raphia was made up of a diverse collection of peoples from across the realm, and their deployment was as follows. Starting from the right wing, 4,000 cavalry were commanded personally by Antiochus and his relative Antipater, riding alongside the companion cavalry and royal Agema. Next were 5,000 Greek mercenaries arrayed as pikemen and swordsmen. 5,000 soldiers of Dahai, Carmanian, and Cilician backgrounds followed. At the center was the phalanx, one block made up of 20,000 settler phalangites levied from the military colonies, but on their right were 10,000 silver shields the prestigious and veteran pikemen of the empire. 10,000 Arabs were immediately adjacent to the left of the phalanx, and after them were 5,000 light skirmishing units for the Iranian plateau. Another 5,000 slingers, bowmen, and javelinmen from Persia and Thrace, and on the very end of the left wing were 1,500 Lydians and the other 2,000 horsemen. In front of each wing were the Indian elephants, with 60 on the right and 42 on the left, but behind the elephants were Cretan archers. 
In total, this amounted to 62,000 infantry, 6,000 cavalry, and 102 elephants of Indian origin. Though the Seleucid force was massive, the Egyptian army was actually slightly larger in comparison, with a greater ratio of infantry to cavalry. On the left wing, Ptolemy positioned himself and 3,700 of his cavalry directly opposite of Antiochus. 4,000 Cretan archers and other units were alongside them. Next were 8,000 Greeks from both Kyrene and Egypt equipped as phalangites. In the middle of the army was the 25,000-strong phalanx of professional Macedonian pikemen. And stationed to their right was the phalanx of 20,000 native Egyptian recruits, personally overseen by Sosibius. As we move to the right wing, 8,000 Greek mercenaries acted as hoplites and were finally followed by 6,000 Thracians and Gauls, before ending the extreme right with 1,300 more cavalry commanded by the officer Echocrates. Like with Antiochus, elephants would be screening both wings. Thanks to the recruitment drive and its reforms, the Egyptian army measured 70,000 infantry, 5,000 cavalry, and 73 African forest elephants. With over 140,000 soldiers arrayed in total, never mind the camp followers or animals, Raphia was the largest battle in the Mediterranean world since the clash at Ipsus in 301. July temperatures in the West Bank tend to be over 30 degrees Celsius or 80 degrees Fahrenheit, easily climbing up to 36 Celsius or 96 Fahrenheit, and it possesses a high humidity despite the aridity of the land surrounding it. With the equivalent foot traffic of a large city kicking up clouds of sand and dust, the climate must have been oppressive, and supply routes were likely stretched to their breaking point as both monarchs looked to decide the fate of Syria once and for all. As the day broke, each army lined up across the battlefield. Speaking both directly and through many translators, both monarchs rode in front of their lines and addressed their soldiers. Given their relative inexperience, they did not cite any great deeds of their own accord, but glorified the history of their dynasties, and promised great rewards should they emerge the victor. Riding alongside Ptolemy as it relayed his speeches was Queen Arsinoe III herself, one of the many Ptolemaic royal ladies that would personally oversee the outcome of a battle. Based on an Egyptian source, it appears that Queen Laodike was with Antiochus as well, the kings of Egypt and Syria returned to their starting positions, tracing each other's movements as they headed to their left and right wing respectively. Once in place, the signals were given to begin the battle, and the officers barked out their orders in several languages for the men to get into position. But the first to meet in combat were the elephants, who charged at each other in a lumbering approach, some wearing enough armor to give them the appearance of a moving fortress. As they came to blows, the bull males smashed their heads into one another in a display of dominance, while the men riding inside of the small towers seated on the backs of the elephants lobbed missiles and thrust spears at both the elephants and the other riders. Ptolemy's African pachyderms were terrified of Antiochus's Indian variety, and some poor beasts were toppled over in the contests and gored in the belly and throat by the sharpened tusks of their foes. Most of the Egyptian elephants fled the battlefield in fright rather than continuing to press forwards, retreating through the line of Ptolemy's cavalry and light troops on his left wing. With much of the Ptolemaic left thrown into disorder and confusion, Antiochus led his guard of riders around the chaos and slammed into the Egyptian cavalry, intent on finding and killing Ptolemy. The Greek mercenaries on the Seleucid right pushed forward as well, 
mauling the light infantry in the melee. On the Ptolemaic right, Echocrates realized that the king's position was being overwhelmed, and decided to lead his cavalry from behind his own elephants and outflank the Seleucid left wing, while ordering the 8,000 Greek mercenaries to march forward and attack Antiochus's Arabian and Iranian troops, who were chased off the field by the ferocity of their push. Now with both of the wings separated, all that remained were the phalanxes in the center of the lines, each poised to march forward and engage one another. The rattling of 60,000 sarissae echoed throughout the field as the phalangites leveled their pikes, perhaps accompanied by battle hymns sung by the soldiers to harmonize and coordinate their movements step by step. Sarissa soon met Sarissa as the two spiked palisades came together in a great din. Men were skewered through the chest or throat by the leaf-like lance of the pikes, and those with broken spears resorted to using small daggers to try to hack at anyone who came close enough. Despite their lack of experience, the still green Egyptians were holding their own against the professional Seleucid force, but each side remained locked in a fierce struggle. Returning to Antiochus, the Syrian king was riding high as the Ptolemaic cavalry in the left wing was all but crushed and had taken flight. In a mixture of adrenaline and youthful vigor, Antiochus got caught up in the moment and rode off in hot pursuit, believing that Ptolemy was still among the retreating horsemen. Little did he know that the pharaoh had already snuck away from his cavalry guard and returned to behind the phalanx. Ptolemy walked among his phalangites to make himself visible for all to see, bolstering their resolve. According to 3rd Maccabees, Arsinoe is also said to have personally rallied many of these troops, calling upon them to defend their wives and children back in their homelands, offering them gold if they could deliver victory. The presence of both the king and queen inspired the troops, and the native Egyptians charged the Seleucid phalanx with ferocious bravery. Under the onslaught of the renewed Ptolemaic attack, the Syrian infantry were overwhelmed and driven into flight or slain. Antiochus was quickly alerted by one of his officers of the collapse of his infantry line, and though he galloped back at full speed to try and restore order, it was too late. The Seleucid army was broken, and the king beat a hasty retreat back to Raphia, before collecting the survivors and marching to Gaza to fortify his position. Despite the odds, the Ptolemies were victorious. Nearly 10,000 Seleucid infantrymen and 300 cavalry were killed in the fighting, and another 4,000 taken captive. Ptolemy came out relatively unscathed, losing 1,500 foot soldiers, 600 cavalrymen, and almost all of his elephants. Much like Demetrius I, Polyarchides at the Battle of Ipsus, Antiochus was carried away by the idea of delivering the cavalry charge with the expressed intent to decapitate the Egyptian leadership, which led him off the battlefield and rendering him unable to affect the outcome of the engagement. Though his army was outnumbered, he possessed the more experienced troops, but without his leadership to keep the left wing and center together, they were able to be swallowed up by the massive Ptolemaic phalanx. In spite of Polybius's near-constant derision of Ptolemy's personal qualities, the Egyptian king defied the odds and displayed courage, as did Arsinoe. Though the architects of the victory were undoubtedly men like Sosibius who helped reform the army, the direct involvement of the king and queen was crucial in keeping the integrity of the phalanx. In the days following the battle, the situation had reversed itself politically. Antiochus and Ptolemy agreed to an armistice, allowing the still formidable Seleucid army to return back to northern Syria across the Eleutherus River unmolested. 
The Egyptian army, meanwhile, spent the next three months restoring Ptolemy's rule throughout Koyali, Syria, being received by the major cities of the region before returning to Alexandria in October of that year. Rather than pushing for a retaliatory campaign into Seleucid territory, a treaty was quickly drawn and signed between both Ptolemy and Antiochus during those three months, in which all of Antiochus's conquests during the war would be returned, barring the city of Seleucia by the sea. Polybius once again attributes this eagerness for peace as a sign of Ptolemy's weakness of will and love of vice, but there is likely more to the story. Though Antiochus lost around 20% of his original force, he still held a powerful army at his disposal, and Ptolemy would have to also deal with the equally fortified settlements in Seleucid Syria. Taking 70,000 soldiers on a lengthy expedition was probably not a safe move in terms of keeping the peace back in Egypt, and Egyptian records speak of a treachery committed by commanders of the troops. Whether this is intended to refer to some sort of turmoil within the Ptolemaic or Seleucid army is unclear, but would have certainly impacted the decision on the king's part. In either case, the mood in Alexandria was one of celebration, as even Ptolemy was surprised by the outcome of the war. Plutarch and Elian suggest that, as a thank you to the gods on an appropriately magnificent scale, Ptolemy sacrificed four elephants on their behalf. In 217, a stone stele was erected by the priests of Memphis to honor Ptolemy's victory at Raphia. Written in Greek, hieroglyphic, and Demotic Egyptian, the literary language and presentation feel very much in line with the decrees of past pharaohs, like the inscriptions of Ramesses II after the Battle of Kadesh. It also offers an interesting narrative take on the battle itself. Quote, in the year 5 on the 1st of Pakhon, Ptolemy IV moved out from Pelusium and fought with Antiochus at a city called Raphia, near the frontier of Egypt, to the east of Bethalea and Senufer. On the 10th of the aforesaid month, he conquered him in great and noble fashion. Those of his enemies who were able to come near him in the battle, he stretched out dead before him, even as Horus slew his adversaries in old time. He compelled Antiochus to fling away his diadem and his royal hat. Antiochus fled with his wife, there being but few that yet abode with him, in pitiful and sorry fashion after his defeat. The most part of his troops endured grievous distress. He beheld the choice of his friends perish miserably. They suffered hunger and thirst. All that he left behind was taken for spoil. Only with difficulty was he able to regain his home, sore grieved at heart. Then the king took as prey much people and all of the elephants. He took possession of very much gold and silver and other precious things, which were found in several places, which Antiochus had held, brought thither under his dominion. He caused them all to be conveyed to Egypt. End quote. While the Raphia decree may speak of the king in a jubilant manner, the rest of the Egyptian population may have walked away with a slightly different attitude. Through their participation in the phalanx, the native Egyptians were rightly considered to be a major contributing factor for the outcome of the battle. The Ptolemaic kingdom was traditionally Greek-dominated, whether in terms of political, military, or socioeconomic power. But now the Egyptians had proved themselves capable of occupying the same roles as the Greek military settlers, and aided the monarchy in a time of crisis. It would not be surprising then that they may have felt entitled to some form of compensation 
whether it was relief from taxes or access to cultural institutions that were otherwise reserved for Greeks or heavily Hellenized non-Greeks. For the time being, all appeared to be quiet, but the undercurrent of resentment would continue to build up if this problem was not dealt with by Ptolemy. But this is a story that will need to be left for another day. Back in Antioch, the climate was certainly different. Though the vast majority of the war went in his favor, the loss at Raphia was deeply embarrassing to Antiochus. It also left him in a state of unease, as he feared that he did not have the confidence of his soldiers, and that Achaios would use the opportunity once again to try and invade Syria. Rather than falling into despair, Antiochus decided that the usurper needed to be put down once and for all. But he would not just stop at eliminating a pretender to his throne, for a great campaign was in the works, the likes of which had not been seen since the days of Alexander's invasion of the Persian Empire. The young Seleucid king looked to restore the borders of his ancestors, and lead his armies from Anatolia to the edges of India on his own personal anabasis. <laughs> <laughs> 